What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, people? Welcome back. I know it's been a minute, and I'm sure you guys missed me. Probably not. Anyway, today we got a special guest, German OG Van. He's an award-winning author, economist, political scientist, and scholar. He's a member of the National Association of Business Economics and the Economic History Association. He was born in West Africa. He obtained a bachelor's degree in political science from the Catholic University of America in 2014, earned a master's degree in political management from George Washington University in 2017, and acquired a non-degree certificate in mathematical statistics from Duke University. He's written books such as The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century, Black America and the Illusion of Political Power, and the economics of gender relations, and many more. On that note, I hope you guys enjoy the show. It's a sensitive topic, as always, but something that needs to be discussed, in my opinion. Give me your feedback. I hope you guys enjoy. Thanks for coming on the show today, Germinal. Thanks for having me. So just to start things off, you're from West Africa, correct? Yes, I'm from the Republic of Cote d'Ivoire. Okay, cool. So how did you come to your understanding of economics and your political philosophy? So first and foremost, I studied political science in school. So I'm, I'm a trained political scientist. Uh, economics came naturally to me. I never, I never took a single class of economics in my entire life, at least in school, like whether it's in undergrad or graduate school. I studied economics on my own. And... Um, definitely makes sense to me. Like it's, it's all about logic, you know, applying pure logic and, and having a uh, analytical approach to it. So that's how I came to economics. But um, I also, since I was in political science, one of my favorite political philosopher, uh, Friedrich von Hayek, He's actually the one who drove me more into economics because he's a, he was a member of the Austrian school. And right. uh, so basically he was doing economics and philosophy. And uh, he started veering more toward philosophy toward the end of his career. Uh, at first he used to focus more on technical economics. So that's how I, is by reading his books, his papers that I got into economics. So it was like, it was a natural shift that happened. So I moved from political science to economics and Hayek moved from economics to politics and philosophy. Okay, cool. And you wrote a book uh, recently called The Economic Condition of Black America in the 20th Century. What were the economic conditions of Black America um, during that time? Well, well it was tough. It was rough. <laughs> Black people struggle a lot to make their ways in, in American society. But uh, I would say that their economic condition has worsened. Mm-hmm. Although it has improved with time, you know, from 1900 to 1999, people had like, you know, with the improvement of technology and everything, people were better off there than grandparents. 
people, right? But with the welfare state, the culture of Black people has regressed rather than progressed. And Mm -hmm. that, I think, prevented them from from climbing the ladder. You know, Um, I deeply believe that Black American culture is a real impediment to Black Americans' advancement in society. They're embracing things that they're not supposed to embrace, and they think that by embracing those things, they're not white. It's not a matter of being white. It's like a matter of adopting a certain number of life codes in order to be successful. You know, there's no um, race tag on those. Like, if you apply those habits, you will be, you'll make it, you'll make it in life. But, but they refuse, and uh, and that is part of it. But it's not just that. The government mm-hmm. also contributed to. To, to their regression. And that's what I explain in the book because, first of all, slavery happened because government allowed it. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that it was a um, illegal, uh, it was illegal uh, in, in institution. So for mm-hmm. something to be legal, it means that the government has to officiate it, you know, he has to officialize it. So, and then when they start progressing by not relying on the government, they were doing better. And then when they rely on the government, first of all, with the war on poverty, which uh, expanded the welfare state, things got worse for, for Black America. That's when we saw the the number of like uh, unmarried, you know, so single parenthood increasing in the community. We saw mm-hmm. the number of like single mothers having kids with different men and these men are either going to jail or they didn't finish school. So they were all, there was a whole system institutionalized to literally prevent Black people from advancing. So in this book, what I try to do is to explain how the real problem was government. Okay. So with regards to some of those obstacles um, during the 20th century, how did Blacks overcome some of those obstacles in the 20th well, century? First of all, Black people are extremely resilient. We are the most resilient people on earth. You, I mean, because of everything we've endured as a community, no matter where we are, we've always find a way to still live life. So how Black people uh, were able to overcome, first of all, we had the Great Migration that happened in two phases. So that enabled Black people to leave the South. Uh, in the South, like, they were reduced to nothing. They, they couldn't make their ways. So they had more job opportunities in the North and in the Midwest. And then that was basically the first phase of the first, the first Great Migration. And the second Great Migration is when Black people moved toward the West. That's when this settlement in Oakland, California, started. That's why we have many black people living in Oakland. So because they had like a lot of job opportunities there. And whenever black people tried to do things on their own, they were very successful until it got destroyed. If we look at Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, that's what happened. When mm-hmm. black decided to not rely on the government to do things their own way, it worked. And then who shut down Black Wall Street? It was the government not the federal government, but the local state government of Oklahoma, right? Like wherever Black Wall Street took place, the local government was accomplished with the racist white folks who did not want to see Black people prospering financially and economically. Mm -hmm. And then 
So you see, like the government could have stopped and said, no, those guys are citizens like you. They deserve to do things the way they want because we live in a free country. But the government was an accomplice to that. They contributed with racist folks to dismantle Black Wall Street. And Black Wall Street was an utter demonstration of wealth in the Black community. Mm. Interesting. Um, During the time of slavery and segregation, were there still a lot of, were there still examples of of Blacks um, being successful financially and otherwise? Oh, yes, of course. You had, first of all, Samuel T. Walcox, he was one, he's the famous one. There were like a couple other Blacks who during slavery were making their ways. But that shows that capitalism doesn't know color because even the racist person who doesn't like you still need to deal with you because he wants to buy something from you. So you're offering a service. Offering a service knows no race. And that was the that was the demonstration of it because most of these people who were rich during the time of slavery, who was the client? Who was the customers? They were necessarily white because slavery happened. Even the freed black slave could barely afford, you know, life at that time. Mm-hmm. Most people decided to go back to, to Africa to settle back in Liberia. But for the one who stayed, they could barely make it. So it, it was very difficult. So most of those emancipated Black who made it in life at that time, their clients or their customers were white. And of course, in the 19th century, no one was woke. You cannot expect a white person at that time to be woke. So all of them had racial prejudice. Mm-hmm. That's, it's, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. Like all, I strongly believe that all white people at that time were racist one way or another. Now it depends on the extent of the racism, like the degree of it. But they all have racial preconception from blacks. That that was a fact. But mm-hmm. the fact that despite their racial bias, they still decide to negotiate or buy stuff from blacks showed that capitalism was able to help black people improving their lifestyle, improving their, their living condition, period. Because right. if you were able to have black people who were prosperous at a time where slavery was legal, mm-hmm. There's no other explanation to give to it. Mm-hmm. So there was no handouts. Uh, I mean, slavery was... Uh, definitely not. Not at that time. Right. So you kind of had to create your own path. Exactly. Financially. And I think uh, Booker T. Washington has made some um, remarks in regards to having a skill set and making yourself valuable to the yep. market. I, I forgot the exact quote, but... It's around the lines of oh, uh, one you know, oh, oh, quick 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 thing uh, quick thing. So yeah, among the, the the rich black people during the time of slavery, so there was Samuel T. Wilcox, there was George Thomas Downing, and uh, these are the two main big guys. And uh, there is another one, Clara Brown. Clara Brown is the one they want to put on the twenty dollar bills. The black woman in Colorado. She, she was basically the first black real estate developer, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's amazing how she fled slavery. She moved out west in Colorado and she started selling houses. Awesome. And who and who would buy these houses? Obviously be white. <laughs> exactly. How many black people do, did, did we have in Colorado at the time who can afford a decent house? Yeah. 
right? So it's, uh, it, it tells you everything you need to know. Now, you, you talked about welfare earlier. Um, so some people would make the argument that, well, you know, the government needs to step in. There needs to be a little bit of help from the government. And, you know, for those people who are less fortunate, I mean, what do you say to, to those that say, well, welfare provides a lot of benefits for, for the needy? What, what are the benefits and the downfalls that welfare has contributed to the Black community? Well, the only benefit is to leave people completely, is to, is to not leave people completely cashless. That's all. That's mm-hmm. the only thing. But it, it didn't also improve their life. It didn't take them out of poverty. Right, because hey, the minute you start making above a certain threshold, you no longer qualify for welfare, right? So, and for people who make money through welfare, they they're not seeking to work because they're like, if I'm making this money per week, why should I bother trying to look for a job? So, what welfare did, in fact, is to take away human responsibility, because what the government did was to patronize to paternalize Black people. Mm-hmm. And they did that by focusing on taking the Black men out of the family unit and telling Black women that they're strong, independent women, they can do a thing on their own. While, while it's, it's, it's not that they can't, but it, it, children need a an, an authoritative figure at home. They need a, a, a paternal figure at home. That's why we have so many... Uh, kids we, who grew up in single parenthood and they're more likely to commit crimes and to go to jail compared to a kid who was brought up in a stable two-parent household family, right? So that's what the, the welfare did. Like the welfare dismantled the Black family unit. The, the, what benefit it did except making sure people are, people are not cashless. That's all. That was the only thing. But okay. making people not cashless, I'm not saying it's bad, to make them not cashless, of course, people need a way to, you know... Get by, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But it did not take them out of poverty either. Instead, it maintains them there. Okay. What, what would you say are the mo- the major um, setbacks or downfalls that welfare has contributed to the Black community? I mean, that's what I just said. Dismantle the family unit. Mm-hmm. Dismantle the family unit. Okay. Like, it encouraged Black women to, to have children with many with many different men and these kids they don't have a father so they're so what are they gonna do they don't finish high school they're just in the streets selling drugs and they and they're increasing their propensity to end up going in jail or to even be killed by the police on the street because it's one of the mm. it's, it's one or the other right okay so looking at some of this this government intervention, like you, you talked about slavery, uh, you talked about Black Wall Street being torn down by um, elements of racism and as well as well as the government, and then we talk about the welfare uh, system that you say has contributed to a, a downfall in the Black community. At some point, when you look at this. Do you notice, I, I don't know, I mean, do you notice a pattern of behavior from the government? Or can you say that maybe this could possibly be an agenda? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Because at the end, because, at the end of the day, for like the way I see was that the big question was, 
how do we keep these Negroes as second-class citizens? We passed the Civil Rights Act, which gave Black people the right to vote. So technically, they're equal to whites in terms of civic rights, like, you know. But it's important to understand that the government has always been an institution of white people. Like, it's they're the one who created the government of the United States. The way the government of the United States operates, it's based on, it's, it's white people who created it. So whites, at the end of the day, never seen blacks are, are are, as their equal, no matter, you know, how more tolerant we've become, more woke we've become, and et cetera. White people never see us as their equal. So how do we find a way to maintain them below us? So instead of now using extreme coercive means, like the way they did during slavery and segregation, now we're going to use soft means to keep them, to induce them into, into that subjugation. And the welfare state was, was, that was one of the ways to do it. Okay. So they can introduce a more subtle uh, way, something, you know, like you said, less, less coercive, less aggressive. Yeah, exactly. Do you know Gloria's Steinman, Steinem? Uh, sounds familiar. So she, she was in Congress? In, was she? Was she in Congress? No, 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 no. She's okay. she's um she's a big um feminist. She's like the most famous feminist in American society. Okay. The reason why I'm bringing her up is because she's the one who actually incentivized the single parenthood mentality in the black community. She's a white woman who worked for the CIA. And yeah, I think I have heard about that. Right. And she promoted the, you know, the all strong, independent women, I don't need a man, and you know, all this nonsense thing. And Black women started to adopt that behavior, mm. right? They started to adopt that behavior. And what happens? Because in the 1960s, Black people were united, like Black people were behaving pretty well. Even look at the way they dressed, look at the way they were talking. Like It wasn't that hood ratchet culture that we have today. It wasn't like that. It was in the 70s, in the late 60s, early 70s, that now the first ghetto started to really take shape. And the, mm-hmm. the, the strong Black independent women mentality that those Black women are approaching today, it was Gloria Steinman, Steinem who, pro, who promulgated that mentality. And what happens now? Black women were making, were having children with different men. And the men were, was, and Black men, what happened to them? They were either taken to jail or they couldn't finish school. There was always something that happened that would prevent them from being the fatherly figure that children need in the family. But Gloria Steinem herself, she was fine. She lived her life Mm -hmm. and and she's still alive. And she lived her life and she's the one talking about like sexual liberation and blah, blah, all this nonsense. And that's why it destroyed the black community. And now if you see which community has the highest rate of abortion in the United States? Is the black community again? Hmm. I, I think uh, recently, I, I'm not sure if this is correct, but I think she said that she was in the CIA in a, in a book, or mm-hmm. I, I heard a talk show. And um, she she worked for the CIA, she, right? Okay. Well, yeah, I guess that goes back to the pattern of <laughs> government involvement and yeah, uh, promoting the no, that's these what I'm telling you. Yep. Yeah. Um, now you, you talk about, you say in, in your book, um, I think on, on the uh, back of the book that 
the African-American community has been one of the most lagging economic, uh, one of the most lagging um, communities economically um, of the national population. How much has racism contributed to that? Personally, I don't think racism has, has contributed more. It definitely played a role to say that racism ne- was never an issue. It's to be honest and dishonest <laughs> at all level of the term. But I don't think racism was the entire problem. It's also a matter of responsibility. If there is one thing that Black people have, have been good at doing is to always blame things on racism to why they don't move forward. But... I think it's important to look at ourselves in the mirror and be honest with ourselves and be like, okay, there's certain things we just don't want to do. <laughs> no, seriously. There's certain things we just don't want to do. I, oh, he, here's the thing. I come from West Africa, okay? I'm black too. And sometimes black mm-hmm. people acting as if like they're the only one who has the monopoly on suffering. I, excuse me, like Africa was colonized. And colonization, in my opinion, is even worse than, than what you guys live here. Why? Because colonization, you have the oppressor who leaves his land coming into your land to take everything you have. Okay? Mm. It's like a stranger coming into your house, beat the hell out of you, rape your wife in front of you, and beat the hell out of your kids in front of you, and you're powerless to do anything. That's what colonization was. So black people need to stop acting as if like, they were the only one on earth who suffered. First of all, how the hell that happened? How they took people from Africa and shipped them here? Someone has to do it. Black, white people they were way too racist to even go in the inland. They always stayed on the mm-hmm. coast. Most of the blacks that were shipped, they, were, they came from the inland. They were not on the coast. They were taken from the inland to the coast, and from the coast, they shipped them to America and to the Caribbean and to Brazil. But that's what happens. That's number one. And number two, slavery has existed since human civilization exists. What is slavery? Right. Slavery is simply the biggest, it's, it's simply about power. Slavery is just about power. And power is the greatest vice of human nature. Human nature loves and wants control. Power is about control. So if you see your neighbor and you feel that you have more leverage than him, you control him. So technically you enslave him. Slavery has right. happened everywhere with people of the same skin. Even the word slave, where does it come from? It comes from Slav, Slavic people who live in Eastern Europe. That's where the word, the word slave comes from. Right. So slavery was not, I mean, uh, slavery is not unique to the United States. Yes, it's unfortunate, but it's not a unique phenomenon that has just happened in the United States. It has happened everywhere on every continent. People enslaved each other left and right. The Japanese enslaved the Chinese. The Germans enslaved the Jews during World War II. Every war, when we had when war occurred, the winners always enslaved the losers. That's what happens. Right. Slavery has, has occurred everywhere. Everywhere. You talk, you mentioned um whites not wanting to go into the inland in Africa to uh to capture slaves. So who who was responsible for handing those slaves or selling those well, slaves? Well, I, I believe you have the answer to your own question. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> right? You I'm ask me something you already know. <laughs> right, yeah, I'm asking for the audience because, you know, some some people, I don't want to say the general population, but some people are unaware of that. Well, it it, it was Blacks. Right. It was Blacks. What, what happened was that you heard of the triangle trade, right? 
people ship uh, slaves to America, America ships goods to Europe, and the Europe ships stuff to Africa and etc. Because Europe was constantly at war. So mm-hmm. Europeans will ship like basic goods and it was not even like, I would call it Chinese good in the way to say like bad, like, you know, poor quality goods to Africans because they knew the Africans didn't know any better. So a, a white, a, like, so a white European colonizer, for instance, will come, give you like a cheap mirror. You look at yourself in the mirror, you've never seen the mirror before. So like you snap and you, and you sell two of your brothers for a mirror. Now, that's what happened. Back in the day, slavery was an economic system. The right. moral question was not an issue. That's the thing. The moral question of, mm-hmm. oh, we're selling human beings. The human beings part was not in the equation. Back then, it was, we're selling commodities. It was like, you know, I'm giving you my phone and I want you to give me, I don't know, uh, a penny in exchange. That's all right. it was. Yeah. Right? So it was... Yeah. In the 19th century, that the, the moral part of slavery became a real thing. But back then, slavery was just okay, these are just properties we're selling. Right. And yes, on top slavery. of that, slavery is still legal in North Africa and in the Middle East as we speak. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That, like that's, why, that's why I say, like, Black Americans, they, they really need to stop. <laughs> they really need to stop. So, to come back to my initial point, we I didn't live through colonization, but we also came from suffering. So I came in the United States. I could have behaved in a way where it would completely jeopardize my life, but I didn't. I made the choice to pursue my studies rather than behaving poorly and jeopardize my career and my, and my future. Today, right. I'm an economist. I write books, I win awards and stuff like that because I made the choice to do this. It wasn't given. I don't believe in determinism. Mm. I yeah. believe in consequentialism. Whatever action we we pause or we do, there are consequences for our actions. Right. Absolutely. The, yeah, exactly. So no, yeah. nothing is given. So that so so that is to say that it's too easy to blame everything on racism. The Jews mm-hmm. also suffered. People used to burn them in, in into crematory ovens. Right. right, like it's yeah. everyone had his piece of suffering, but instead yeah. of blaming on what happens to you, Jew- Jewish people, they're like, let's fall, let's focus, let's get things done. The same happened with Asians. Asians mm-hmm. also had the fair share of suffering, so yeah. we can it- continue to attribute racism to everything that is not working for Black people. We need to take responsibilities. We need right. to embrace like the habits of success. What are the habits of success? Is to yeah I, be, yeah go ahead. No, I was going to say I do I do want to touch on that and sure. uh, yeah I mean suffering has been <laughs> obviously it's been the story of mankind. Mm-hmm. There were some other things that you talked about in your book that I wanted to touch on. Um, you said institutional racism uh, has been instituted by both parties. Mm-hmm. How so? Because I know you know you have black conservatives and then you have black Democrats. How would you say that? both parties have contributed to institutional racism? It was the political system. Because at the end of the day, when welfare, as, as I said, like welfare was the issue that basically maintained Black people in a state of slavery, right? Republicans, at least in abstract, they stand against the welfare system. 
But have you seen a Republican taking down the welfare system? No. Exactly. <laughs> Even Reagan, who was perhaps the most conservative president of the 20th century, did not take the welfare system down. None of them. I mean, because first of all, right. there are more, there, there are ton of, I mean, there are more, there are more whites in welfare than blacks. That's <laughs> the number one reason why they didn't, because they knew that if they take the welfare system down, all, all of those people in welfare will never vote for them again. Mm. Right? And, and, and that's number one. And number two, the war on drugs. Nixon. Nixon was a Republican who enforced the war on drugs to get people, to get black people off the street. Look at now Joe Biden with the, with the crime bill in 1994, a Democrat. And, you know, three strikes, you're out. We all know this. So you see that both parties, one way or another, uh, contributed right. to, to black culture's demise. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the... When it comes to the war on drugs, okay, so the intention was to fight against the uh, the usage of drugs and I guess to arrest people that were selling drugs, correct? Yes, yes. So, so my, my yeah, question ahead. is, how did, if, if the government's intention was to declare war on drugs and to eradicate drugs from our society, how did that end up? having a negative impact on Black America. I'm going to read you a passage here of the book. It's for us. It was from John Ehrlichman. He was Nixon's uh, advisor. Okay. I'm going to read you that passage. You will see. John Ehrlichman says this. He said, we knew we could not make it illegal to be either against the war or Black. So when he said the war, he talks about the Vietnam War. But... By getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminal and criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And of course, mm. John Ehrlichman, you should look him up. And, and he worked for Nixon? He was the, the, one of the closest advisors of Richard Nixon. Wow. Yep. I've never heard that quote. That's, that's amazing. So uh, there we go. Back to the agenda. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> right? <laughs> Man, that's, a, that's amazing. Um, I guess when you think about it, Republican and Democrat, I mean, both of them, it's, you know, Republican political system. So basically, the, right. the, the, the central theme of the book, no, not the central theme. The central idea of the book was to say, do not rely on politics to get your way out of poverty. We never seen a a people becoming wealthier through politics. It's economic. It's the economic system that makes people wealthier. What I mean by that is a community that focuses on the private sector. It's a community that does things on its own. Look at the Jews again. Jewish people, they really support each other. When a Jewish person starts a business, everyone invests in that business. So the money within the community stays for a long time before it leaves the community. But in the black community, when someone starts a business, people don't support him. Black people have money, they rather buy stuff, Gucci, Louis Vuitton. All these corporations are, are owned by white people. When Chinese people start a business, everyone invests in that Chinese business. 
again, yeah. the money within the Chinese community doesn't leave the community for a long time. Mm. Yeah. yeah um, if, and, and, and let me finish. And if you look at all the minorities, all the minority communities in the United States, which minority community has the most people in politics? I'm going to have to say the black community. The black community, right? And when a black when the black community elects a black official, does that community suddenly get its is its life improved or things remain the same? We can take Newark, New Jersey, for example. Yeah. Newark, New Jersey, the current mayor, Ras Baraka, the guy makes over 130k a year. But a, a black person in Newark makes barely 40k. Mm-hmm. How do you explain that? You have your black. You say, I'm going to elect my black brother. He will help me get out of this. He becomes mayor and you still broke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, well, mean, I, guess... I, I actually want to understand what's going on. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, those, those are good questions. Um, yeah, I guess in terms of population relative to the numbers of, of the population, um, obviously there's tons of whites that are in political positions. Um, yeah, what, what you, it's on population. Yeah. Re, um, when it comes to parties, I, I think we know the answer to this, but just for the audience to know, um, wh- which party would you say Black America is more aligned with or more loyal to? I mean, the Democratic Party, and the Democratic okay. Party is the party that is maintaining Blacks in poverty. Okay, so my question to you is, why? Why is there this overwhelming loyalty or blind loyalty to the Democratic Party? The because, because, and I explained this in the book, there is a social contract that took place. It's an obscene, I don't know if you read uh, The Leviathan of Thomas Hobbes, but if you haven't, I will strongly suggest that you read. It's a great book. It's a book of political philosophy. And in this book, basically, Thomas Hobbes explained that People must surrender their rights to the sovereign in exchange for security, right? Mm. So you surrender your right. He said that just in the state of nature, it was brutish, it was rough, it was a state of loss of law- lawlessness. There was no law there. So we need a strong leader who will establish a social contract. And this social contract is that we're going to create a government wherein the citizen will give away his rights to the sovereign and the sovereign in exchange will assure their protection. So is that same same concept that the the Democratic Party did with Black America, specifically at the time of LBJ when he was president? Because LBJ is the one who pushed for the Civil Rights Act. Right. Exactly. So I don't, he he said like, there's a famous quote that says that, he said, oh, we're going to make, uh, we're going to pass the civil rights and black people will vote for us for the next 200 years. Yeah, I've heard, I've seen that before. Uh, I never verified it, but I've seen it online. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, me too. I never verified it, but I've heard, you know, like it's been repeated a lot on TV and, you know, but yeah, so so that's what happened. So he, he basically applied this obscene concept where the Democratic Party is the sovereign Black people are the citizen, the subject, and they surrender their rights to the Democratic Party in exchange for security. Mm-hmm. But yeah. did they get the security that they were looking for? That was my next question. <laughs> and, and the answer is no. Right. So why, why does this pattern continue, uh, continuing to support this party? 
if there's nothing in exchange. Right? Well, because it's, you know, at this point, sometimes like, let me make an analogy here. You know, let's say you've been married to someone for a long time and you're not happy, but at the same time, you don't want to divorce. Mm. So what do you do? You say, oh, you know what, honey? Let's be miserable together. (laughs) You see what I mean? Like It's kind of like that. Well, God hates divorce, right? No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's kind of like that. Like, you know, like we... We know we're not happy, but let's stay together not being happy rather than having a divorce. Mm. Especially back in the days when divorce was not, you know, a thing, like when it was not well perceived by society. So it's a little bit that thing going on with Blacks. Blacks are aware that the Democratic Party is not, but at the same time, too, they stay in because they get a lot of favors, especially government. So for those on welfare, a Black person on welfare that will not vote for a Republican. Because if a Republican comes, he's going to cut welfare spending on them. <laughs> he's going to have to look for a job, and he doesn't want that. All right. So uh, in um, your other book, um, you talked about your second, um, another book on Black America and the uh, illusion of political power. Mm-hmm. What do you say to those that think, well, you know, if we get behind guys like Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson and we get our people in there, you know, we, we could uh, make a way for ourselves. How would you tell, why would you say it's an illusion, like when it comes to political power? Well, show me any, show me any evidence that shows that Al Sharpton elevated the Black community economically. Show me any evidence that shows that since, since Al Sharpton has been advocating for Black people, the income of Black people has increased based on, based on that. Or you don't have any evidence because there's no evidence <laughs> because it doesn't it, it didn't happen. You right. you never see Art Chapton going to the south of Chicago, uh, telling black people to stop killing each other. But you see Art Chapton whenever there's a white cop around brutalizing a black person, then ah, uh, he's racist. But you never see Art Chapton or what's his name, Benjamin Crump, the attorney mm-hmm. like we call him the attorney general of Black America. You never seen these guys going to, to to protest against black-on-black crime. No, you don't. It's not a problem. So why? Because they, they, they're they not going to make a cut of it. They won't get any paycheck. But when a, a, a white cop interacts with a black person and he turns south, they know, they know they're going to get their cut. They, they know the paycheck is going to be fat. So that's why they involve themselves in it. They will never involve themselves in a thing that they know the paycheck won't, won't, will not be good. Mm-hmm. Al has been has been in public life for so long, and all he does is to create more resentment within the community. You don't say Al Sharpton telling kids get involved with education, learn, you no know, go to school, pursue an education. Education will take you far in life. You never seen that. It doesn't encourage them. You never seen the BLM movement doing that too. The BLM movement model is based on death. And, 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 and wounds. For the BLM movement to work, a Black person has to be a victim of police brutality. So you never seen the BLM movement promoting education, promoting personal responsibility, promoting financial, financial education. You never seen the BLM movement talking about, talking to Black people about how to invest in stocks. Mm. How, how, many, how, how many Black people do you see being hedge fund managers? Not many, rare. They don't. Yeah. All they do is like, oh, go into sports, go into entertainment. 
Right. We never yeah. involve black people into in, into intellectual ability, uh, intellectual activities. We never involve black people with with finance, with the financial system. We, we don't. There is no real like. Have you ever seen a black person being the chairman of the Federal Reserve? Never. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, you you do uh, mention uh, race baiters and the media and black politicians relying on this, the, these grievances to increase their wealth and their status. I mean, they have to know that, obviously they know that this is an industry that they can fatten their pockets by doing this. But do you think that this is intentional? Do you think a guy like Al Sharpton is like, hey, you know what, let me go... Uh, stir up these tensions or go to this rally because I'm going to get a, a big check from this, but I'm not going to say anything about, you know, this, this black boy that got shot by another black kid. Do you think that's I mean, intentional? Of course. Otherwise he doesn't make his cut. I'm telling you, he needs a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a paycheck, man. He needs mm. to start riots. He needs to in, in, inflame the old wounds. Now you that says a lot. He's not he's not making money. Okay. I mean that says a lot because it's not only Sharpton. I mean, we could talk about BLM, uh, Patrice, Patrice Colors. I think there was reports that she bought a multi-million dollar house and yeah, exactly. And and, and 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 I'm sure you know the answer to this, but as you say for the audience, let's enlighten them. Where did she buy those houses? In a white neighborhood. Thank you. Why why she didn't buy yeah. it in, in, in the hood? What's going on? You say you can't buy black people, so why you don't buy a house in a black neighborhood? Mm -hmm. I mean, now you would have to put a, there would be a long line of people that would be on this this list of profiting off, off of these grievances. So you have, I mean, Maxine Waters, you could say, you could, you know, outside of Sharpton, we could say BLM. Um, I mean, Cory Booker, we could say Kamala Harris. So, I mean, this is a lot of people. Yeah, of course. Um, so these people would be, if this is what they're doing, they would be considered uh, basically traitors. Of course, they, I mean, they are the real race. traitors. Yeah. They are the real traitors so, because they do not promote, they do not prom pro promote what needs to be promoted, financial education, education in general. That's what people need. Nelson Mandela said, Nelson Mandela was a communist. But if there's one thing I agree with him, he said education is the most powerful tool the society needs to prosper. That, that's what we need. If you're not educated, look at all the, the, the most advanced countries on earth. Look at their literacy rate. It's always 80 or, or, or 90% or plus. But look at the literacy rate in the black community or even in African countries, as a matter of fact. Because we don't yeah. invest in those things. We invest in entertainment all day long. Black people want to be entertained all day freaking long. If right now, if if right now you start like a course about how to invest in stocks and stuff, black people will not go and, and, and pay for your course. But if you start a brief show on like the Real Housewives or whatever, you will see you will see on YouTube you have like instantly like ten k followers or subscribers. Yeah. Why is that? Because yeah, the I mean, leaders don't it don't don't do it. They don't they don't promote these things. I've never seen. Mm. Maxine Waters, Al Sharpton, all the BLM leaders saying, kids, go to school, take your school seriously, take school seriously, take your education seriously, learn how to invest in the stock market, learn how to pay taxes. This is how the tax system works. You know why, you know why white people are successful? Because why they that? understand the rules. 
when you understand the rules in the system you live in, then you know how to bypass these rules. And you bypass these rules by applying all the legal means. The, the right. ways, like, the IRS even made it specifically, like, there are ways to avoid paying taxes. <laughs> <laughs> and they said it's perfectly legal. Right. Why people understand those and they, and they use it to their advantage. And then people yeah. say, oh, yeah, well, he's white, so definitely he has, he has an advantage over him. No, he doesn't. Why people do their research? Mm-hmm. They do their research. I, it, it's not, it, it, there is no correlation that someone is white, therefore is wealthy. Someone is black, therefore is poor. That's not true. I came in this country. I never felt inferior to a white person my entire life. Never. Yeah. I never felt that way. I say like a white person is a human being like me. He's not smarter than me. Who the hell is he? Right. To me, like you're a human being, is. like you, you, the human race was born in poverty. If you're rich, it's because your parents were rich. But what about you? What value did you create? Right. whatever you enjoy is your parents and you're not your parents yeah that's why like no matter like when people feel entitled like that's why i have no respect for entitled people what value did you create for yourself that contribute to society's advancement it's yeah, always people they inherit from someone else or from something yeah. else and they think that they made it no you haven't made anything <laughs> there was a few other things i wanted to touch on before we wrapped up um yeah. Minimum wage. How does minimum wage negatively impact the black community or so? So the minimum wage discriminates against low-skilled people. So when you increase the minimum wage, but it's important to understand that it's not also a systematic thing. It doesn't like it's not like right. It's up. It, it happens. Therefore, there's not there is no employment. No, it's not the way it works. But when you increase the minimum wage you force the employer to be even more selective. So let's say, for instance, you increase the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and there is a black kid who is like 15 or 16. He needs needs his first job, like let's say, you know, not Walmart, because Walmart can afford and it won't affect, it won't like, the minimum wage doesn't affect their staff. But let's say like the local shop, you know, in the neighborhood, so you hire, you say you need someone just to clean up the shelves, you know, put things in place on the shelves at a typical store. This doesn't require any specific skills. But now you're compelled to pay that person who has no skills 15 bucks. So you pay right. the guy 15 bucks an hour for doing something that doesn't worth 15 bucks an hour. So what the employer is going to do is going to be like, I'm not going to spend 15 bucks on that, on, on him for that. I can do it my own. Or I can hire, or I can get like a machine to do that. And then those people with low skills now, they don't have anything else. Mm. Because the thing is that your first job, in fact, is not about making money. Your first job helps you build discipline. It helps you become more responsible. And it makes you become more of a man. Because when you wake up in the morning knowing that you have a job and you go exchange your time for labor and you get a wage at the end of that time spent, you're proud of it because you're contributing rather than being in the hood all, all day doing drugs and getting drunk because there's nothing else to do. You're, pro- you're being productive. And as you develop like those, um, those uh, disciplinary skills, like being on time, uh, you know, being respectful to your employer, doing what you've been asked, as you move on, now you can apply for higher for, for jobs with higher wage. Why? Because you have more experience. 
So your first job is just the entrance for you to get experience. But if you put a minimum wage that prevents people from even getting that experience, then don't complain why now people get on the street and then they increase the likelihood of going to jail. Mm. So in a sense, you're kind of pricing out the lower skilled uh, applicants. Yep. In a sense. Um, I think I remember reading uh, Walter Williams talk about in yep. um, South Africa. The, yeah, he hated the minimum wage. Yeah, he's, he spoke about it. They how they practice minimum wage laws in apartheid South Africa to kind of price um, lower skill blacks out of the market. Um, so I, th- yeah. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, um, exactly. Now, what do you think is the, well, I think you did touch on some solutions. So how, how do blacks build wealth? And, and what do you say to blacks that say, well, you know, we, we've, um, We've been victim of um, this this white supremacist system and this racist system that's held us back and put us at a disadvantage. What is what is the way moving forward now? Well, the way moving forward is that people need to be again. People don't need to have a PhD to show that they're educated. The beauty of America is that we value more your skills, your entrepreneurial engagement rather than your academic <laughs> performance. You can have a PhD. If you know this, most PhDs are not millionaires. <laughs> the proof, right? It's people <laughs> who are millionaires or even people who only have a high school degree and they got into entrepreneurship or people who they have like a bachelor's degree and, and they move on. So it's basically people who did not go long in school. They got a degree and then they move on to something else. So we need like, when it comes to entrepreneurship, black people already do that, but they they all go into saturated industries like haircut, like, you know, barbershop, haircuts, uh, nails and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's important to diversify. We need more black people in the financial system. We need black institutions. We need more black bankers. We need more black hospitals. We need infrastructures owned by blacks mm-hmm. we the, the black community does not own the most substantial infrastructures that we need to build a society specifically a bank don't get me wrong the black banks around the country but it's not enough we need to have like our own black central bank if i can put it this way like our own black mm-hmm. like federal reserve yeah right something like it. that we, we don't have that. We need black people need to be taught economics and, and finance. It's important. Without those, we cannot make it. Right. And we how would you suggest what, what would uh, what do you think is your solution to um, changing the, the culture and the mindset, um, not only in terms of wealth, but as far as like, you know, I mean, the black crime rate or, you know, abortion in the black community? Oh, that's a long way, my friend. It's uh, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to change people's mind because, again, the current Black culture is a poison to Black people. And they don't realize this. Again, as I said, like, try to create a course. Try to create a course online, like how to invest in the stock market and see how many Black people will, will, will pay your course. Mm-hmm. Try to create that and try to create something that deals with entertainment and you will see the difference. The book that you are interviewing me about, those two books, those people who bought these books are white. Black people don't buy my books. 
Have you have you been interviewed by any black journalists or on any uh, black platforms? To, uh, to uh, to a few, but they definitely don't go above five. Right. Yeah, yeah. That, but that tells you this book I wrote was for black people, and very few blacks read this book. Most of the people who read these books are white. They all my audience on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. They 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 buy the book. They take a picture. They say, "Journal, this is one of the greatest books I ever read about Black America." Yeah. Well, I found out about you through Tom Woods, who is white. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I, it, it, it's yeah, sad, I mean, man. It, it's sad. You you write this for them, and they don't care. And it's not even. And they don't even have to buy the hard copy. They can go online. Mm-hmm. Today, every black person has a smartphone. Right. Every black person has a smartphone. No black person has a flip phone. All of them has a, have a smartphone. But do you see them downloading a book like on Kindle and read? No. But you see them mm-hmm. listening to hood rap mm-hmm. and doing things that are not relevant to, to society. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has to be a shift in mindset. And obviously, we're, you know, we don't want so to... So to answer your question, I, I don't know how to really change that mindset. What I can do on my part is to keep writing to make people aware, but I cannot force you to read something you don't want to read either. Right. So now are you are you taking the torch from uh, a Walter Williams and a Thomas, Thomas Sowell? Uh, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I pledge on doing this, but I want also... Yeah, I pledge on doing this. I pledge on taking the torch from them and keep making black people like this, the black community aware. There's even a book that I want to write, but this time is to make black people aware of the fact that they're screwing up so bad. I want to talk about the problem of generational wealth in mm-hmm. black America, why black people are gen- generationally poor. Well, we definitely got to have a discussion on that. And I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because I love Thomas Sowell. I love uh, Walter Williams. Walter Williams is just like, he's blunt. He tells you how it is. He doesn't hold any punches. And I, I love his sarcasm and just, just his, his wit. Um, <laughs> so I, it's good to hear you say that because we do need, you know, more economists, especially black economists with, with that mindset, that that free market mindset, you know, that, that believes that, uh, you know, if we step our skills up and we rely on ourselves, we, we can make a way for ourselves. Um, oh, yeah. and, and, last... and, and, and we did it with, with Black Wall Street. We did it at the time of Booker T. Washington. Booker T. Washington always said, have enough education so you can become self-reliant. As I say, when we say education, people think we tell them, go do a PhD. No, you don't need a PhD. Have enough mm-hmm. education for you to understand the basic concept of society and have enough skills to be proficient so that you are indispensable. A plumber, we always need one. We mm-hmm. always need plumbers. This is a job that is indispensable, yeah. right? Like, that, 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 that's what it is. Like, trade school is something I really love. I love when Black go into trade school because they're specializing themselves into a specific skill, which is great. We need more of that. But we need not to diversify trade school because... Trade school, it's more like um, barbers and, and nail salon and stuff like that, which is fine. But we have enough of it. We need to go into other things that we are lacking. And I encourage more Black people to go to college. We need Black economies. We need Black banks. 
a society, if you notice, the most powerful communities are the communities that have a monetary system well established. You see mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. We are lacking that. So long as we lack a monetary system well established in the black community, we will be poor until the end of times. It's not rocket mm. science. Money yeah. is what controls the world. Money is what controls things. Money controls politics. Yeah, it's true. Every politician is bought. <laughs> exactly. The reason, as I said, the reason why Jewish people are prosperous is because they understood money. Yeah. Well, with that being said, um, where can the audience find your books? Amazon. Amazon is the main platform, but if people Google me, my name pops up and some of my books pops up as well. So, yeah. Okay. And any, are you doing any uh, speaking engagements anytime soon? Uh, I don't think so. Right now I'm working on a book about, my 22nd book is about the economic policies of Thomas Jefferson. It's a history book. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, it's a his- history book. It's not a biographical book. It's not. It's, it's a book of historical and, and economic analysis focusing specifically on the economic policies of Thomas Jefferson. Because people, we all know, yeah, Thomas Jefferson is a founding father. He was against big government and he was for agriculture and blah, blah, blah. But what were his actual policies and what were the impact of those policies? This is something that people don't really know. So, including me. So that's why I decided to write about it. Yeah, that should be interesting. Definitely. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for your time, man. I appreciate it. I hope I you much uh, continue appreciate it. Man. Thank you very much. Take care. Have a great day, man. Thanks. You too. God bless.